All right, can everyone stand up? Put your hand on your heart. I want you to say after me. I, you close your eyes. We're, we're praying a prayer here. We're making a declaration. I am ready to be transformed. I am ready to be transformed. I open my heart. I open my heart. To receive the word. To receive the word. I came in one way today. I came in one way today. But I expect to leave different. But I expect to leave different. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, have your way, have your way in, my life today. in my life today. Change me. Change me. Give me a new picture of myself. Give me a new identity. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are going to... We're going to talk about changing your identity, I hope, today. At least for some of you, I'm sure that 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 is what's going to take place. And Dan's done a great job of outlining what it looks like to be a new creation in Christ. But what comes after that? It's, it's one, that's, that's kind of like getting in the gate. But once you're through there, what comes after that? Now, we can pussyfoot around with the idea of trying to find your purpose in life. Um, And while that is a part of the picture, your calling has actually already been mapped out in explicit detail for you. But to help you understand your identity, We're going to start this off by looking at one of the most mysterious and elusive and enigmatic identities in the scripture. And that is a man by the name of Melchizedek. Now, uh, grab your Bible or your Bible app and open up to Genesis 14 and while you're doing that I'm just going to give you a little bit of a a background. Abram as he's still known at this point and his nephew Lot have both become so wealthy that they have to part ways because the land literally cannot support all of their livestock. That's a good problem. So Lot chooses to head where? Who knows where Lot goes to? Place by the name of Sodom. And he decides to take up residence there. And in Genesis chapter 14, it describes a battle of five kings against four. Now, Sometimes you get this stuff in scripture and you start reading through and you start going, oh yeah, a guy with a funny name, blah, blah, blah. But I want you to pay attention to to these characters, all right? At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Kedolomur king of Elam, and Tidal king of Gorham, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemeba, 
king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Man, if you want to get used to speaking in tongues, read this. <laughs> read this scripture, right? All these latter kings joined forces in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedorlamur, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Now, you go, where are you going with this? It's actually important information. All right, so we've got this guy, Kedorlamur, and he's the king of Elam, and he has with him... Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, and Tidal, king of Gorham. Four kings. And they go to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemeba, king of Seboim, and Zoar, king of Bela. Now, I'm sure that these names and places have meanings that we could go and unpack. But for the purpose of this, I just want you to note the names of the kings and where they're from, because this is going to be important for later. All right. Amongst the five losing kings is the king of Sodom. And we pick up in verse 11 with this. The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm reading from verse 11. And headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew who lived in Sodom and carried off everything he owned. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram the Hebrew who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mam the Amorite. Mab and his relatives, Eshol and Ana, were Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Kedolam's army all until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Kedolamah's army fled, but Abram chased them as far as Hobah near uh, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and captives. After Abram returned from his victory over Kedolamah, and all of his allies. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. So this king of Salem, and I want you to notice this. This king of Salem, Melchizedek, was not one of the kings of the war. Did you notice that? 
And yet, Abram gives a tenth of the spoils of his victory to this king. Now, what's going on here? Here's some points to consider. Abram, and for that matter, Lot as well, were effectively nomad kings. Their wealth and power rivaled that of the kings, or, or let's face it, tribal lords of the cities in the region. Kings were peers to Abram and Lot. Okay? They, so Abram and Lot, when, when they went about their daily business, the people that they counted as their peers were these kings, these tribal lords. Okay? They had just as much power and strength and wealth as the men that were running these cities. Okay? In all of the narrative of Abraham throughout his whole life, you will never see Abraham bow to any king. Not even the king of Egypt, not even Pharaoh. In fact, the only person in the whole of his life that you see him bow down to is the Hittite clan that blesses him by allowing him to purchase land to bury Sarah. Abram, in meeting Melchizedek, not only bows to him, but gives him a tenth of the spoils. Now, this has significance for two reasons. First, a tenth, and, and for you guys that struggle with the idea of tithing, this is where it comes from. Tithing is not law. Tithing is a spiritual symbol. A tenth is a spiritual representation of the whole. So Abraham, by giving this guy Melchizedek a tenth, is saying, actually, it all belongs to you. Now, that's interesting. Secondly, to give the spoils of war to a king is not a gift. It's called, does anybody know the name? When you give the spoils of war to a king, it is called tribute. It is stating by giving that tribute, it is saying, I yield to you. Your power is greater than mine. So why would Abram a man of such wealth and such power who could raise an army out of the, the people that had been born in his own house. He could raise an army strong enough to defeat the five armies, sorry, the four armies of the, the victorious um, alliance. Why would he bring this offering to this mysterious king and give it to him when he wasn't even part of the war. Right? This is, this is a, a dig here, I call it. It's like there, there, there's something here. We've got to go digging here to understand this. Now, remember, all of this, I'm telling you this whole story, I'm actually talking about you. And as we, as we get through this, you're going to start to have some aha moments. And it'll be like, oh, shift. Right? Oh, that sounds bad. I said shift. 
Um, as in, there's, there's, going to be a, there's going to be an identity shift that takes place when, when you start to click on to what I, I'm going to share with you today. Now, the other thing that we learn from this scripture is that this king, Melchizedek, is also a priest and not of some false god. It says that he is a priest of God Most High. And note that he is not called the priest or high priest, but he is nonetheless recognized as a priest of God. Now, this is really important. Now, what else can we learn about this character Melchizedek? Well, Hebrews has a whole lot to say about him. And I want you to flip over now to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 5 and 6. I'm reading from the NLT if, you're, if you've got an app and you're wanting to follow me. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. That is why Christ did not honour himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now, who knows when that was said? When did God say that to Jesus? At his water baptism, right? When the, the, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you notice here it says, you ha- I, today I have become your father. It's an important little point. And in another passage, God said to him, you being Christ, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is a quote from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 4 reads this. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So from these scriptures, we learn that Melchizedek was not alone. He was part of a priestly order. So the inquiring mind would ask the question, what is the order of Melchizedek? Well, it's it's the Melchizedek order. It's the order order of Melchizedek. It's the order called Melchizedek, right? Well, no. No, it's not. We also learn from these scriptures that Jesus is also a priest of this very same order. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So reading on verse 8 of chapter 5. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a high priest in this order of which Melchizedek is also a priest, right? So Jesus is the high priest. Melchizedek is also a priest 
of this order. Now, flip over a chapter to chapter 6. And we're going to read from verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest, our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we see here that Jesus is now eternally our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7. Sorry, chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. When Abram was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him, right? We know this story. We've read it in Genesis just as the writer of Hebrews has and he's recounting it. Verse 2. Then Abram took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. So here we learn that this character has two titles. Melchizedek, king of Salem, literally means king of righteousness, king of peace. His name is actually not his name at all, but two titles. All right, so, so it's like being the, the Earl of Essex, right? It doesn't mean that your name is Earl. G'day, Earl. Right? No, it's, that's not your name. It's, it's a title. Okay, so Melchizedek, king of Salem, is, what did I say? Uh, king of righteousness, king of peace. Now for one of the most puzzling parts at all. Verse 3 of chapter 6. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever? And why? It says he remains a priest forever because there's no record of his ancestral line. So is this a metaphorical statement? Or is it something more? I wonder. And it says, resembling the Son of God. And to me, this statement takes the cake, right? Because we're supposed to accept that Melchizedek resembles Jesus because like Jesus, he has no ancestral line, right? No. No. We know the ancestral line of Jesus through Mary, all the way back to Adam. And we know the ancestral line of Joseph, his presumed father, also all the way back to Adam. So to say that Melchizedek is like Jesus because 
neither of them have any father or mother or you know any beginning or end uh, that neither of them have any ancestral line does not fit what we know about Jesus are you getting what I'm saying because we know the ancestral line of Jesus in fact the Bible goes to great pains to prove the ancestral line of Jesus so what does that mean then to say that Melchizedek is like Jesus based on the fact that neither of them have ancestry would be totally wrong so what do we do with this glaring problem that we have in this scripture well I'll let you in on a little secret that makes the world of difference with this scripture the word the resembling the son of God right the word the is an interpretive interjection here without unpacking the Greek around the the transliteration of this scripture would read something like this he remains a priest forever resembling son of God the word the is not in the Greek are you following what I'm saying so it just says Melchizedek priest forever resembling son of God you're hearing what I'm saying now the term the son of God and son of God have very different meanings something that we're going to unpack in a moment but let's just continue on and read verse 4 so chapter 7 verse 4 consider then how great this Melchizedek was I, I, I mean right there there's a phrase there consider just how great this Melchizedek was Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now, the law of Moses required that the priests, who are descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, remember this, you know, Levi came four generations later right more than that um melchizedek who was not a descendant of levi collected a tenth from abraham and melchizedek placed a blessing upon abraham the one who had already received the promises of god and without question the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed so he's actually saying this this guy Melchizedek is greater than Abraham whoa 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 right this is (laughs) are you starting is this helping to paint out who this guy is some some people go no (laughs) wait we will get there now in verses 8 to 10 it just expands on just how great Melchizedek is right Um, and how he's greater than Levi let's skip down Let's go to verse 11. So if the priesthood of Levi 
on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? Now, I want you to see here that the order is being identified by a person or people, Levi and Aaron, but it is not the name of the order. This is because what was the name of the order from Levi and Aaron? The Levitical priesthood, right? So it's called the Levitical priesthood, but Aaron was the first priest of it. So it, it wasn't the Aaronic priesthood. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was given a name it was taken from Levi's name, but it, it was given a name that was separate to the individuals. And in the same way, it's telling us Melchizedek is part of an order that he's a part of and Jesus is a part of. Are you hearing me? I wonder what this order is. So, are you following me? Are you keeping up with where I'm going with this? All right. So let's read on verse 12. And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is this, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. Verse 16, this change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, and watch this, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So watch this, watch this. So what is it that makes Jesus like Melchizedek? It is the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Cannot. So, so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Melchizedek, like Jesus, demonstrated the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. That's interesting. Now, skip down to chapter 8. It's funny. Why is it that every time I do this, there's like signs in the heavens? Sorry? Oh, it's getting that bad, is it? Yeah, okay. I'll just shout more. I'll just get more excited. Um, so we're in chapter 8, verse 1. Here is the main point. Oh, at last. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honour beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. 
There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. So this priesthood is part of the order, the divine order of the true place of worship that is in heaven, not the replica that was created here on the earth. All right. So why is this knowledge of the priesthood so important? Because we too are called to be part of that priesthood as part of our eternal inheritance. All right, is anyone else's hair starting to stand on end yet? Now, flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5 through to 9. We're really only going to read 5 and 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple what's more you are his holy priests through the mediation of Jesus Christ you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God <laughs> verse 9 but, but you are not like that for you are a chosen people you are a royal, a royal priests a holy nation God's very own possession as a result you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. I want to read that again. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Okay? Priesthood, a priestly activity, showing the goodness of God. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Flick over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 19 and 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. How are you going? You keeping up with me? <laughs> Few people go, no, no. Yeah. No, you. <laughs> well done. All right. 2 Corinthians 19 and 20. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Do you hear that? 
when we, we speak for Christ, when we plead, come back to God. Now, I want you to hear a few other elements to your inheritance as the knowledge of these elements will help you pull together the nature of your inheritance. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. I know that this is like um, some heavy-duty stuff, but, but it, it actually is heavy-duty, right? As, as you start to pull this together, you're going to, to begin to actually get a picture of who you are. Yes? We are going to find out in due course. <laughs> I, it's, that is a really good question. The, um, the standard perspective is that Melchizedek is the, is the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay? But, like I said, I want you to keep your mind and heart open because I'm going to show you some stuff around this. All right, so chapter 6, verse 1 to 3 of 1 Corinthians when one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in life. What do you learn from this? You are called to judge the world and judge angels. And one day you will find yourself doing that. Who here feels ready for that? Wow. There's a few arrogant hands going up around the room. No. <laughs> All right, Romans chapter 8. Verse 17, Romans 8, 17. And I'm taking this from the New King James. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So you are an heir. Heir. You have an inheritance, but that inheritance is equal, equal to that of Christ. I mean, this is starting to, uh, I don't know, I'm starting to get scared of this now, right? It's like, what are you saying, Todd? I am saying that I'm reading the Bible and it is telling me that if we're children, then we're heirs and that if we're heirs, we're joint heirs with Christ. So that means that what Christ gets, we get. Oh. 
if you are children. Yeah, I'm telling you, there's big stuff. There's, there, are, there, there are powers at work that are not happy with you coming to a point of comprehension with what I'm sharing with you today. Yeah, yeah. Look, and this is the thing, is that if you comprehend what I'm sharing with you today, it will change your identity. You won't be able to walk out of here without having your identity actually shifted. All right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. But if God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms. 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 Because we are united with Christ. Oh man, I could go off on a whole tangent right there. Okay, but look for my book on Stop Trying to Put Me in a Dress and, uh, and I will answer that one then. Um, verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ. So you are united with Christ. You are seated with him in heavenly realms. Oh, all right. This is getting good. Now, Let's go back to our original story. Why did Abram give this tenth to Melchizedek? Now, I believe that there is a hint in another story around Abram. In Genesis 18, and you can have a, a read of it for yourself, God comes to visit Abram as, or Abraham as he now is with two of his angels. The narrative identifies very clearly that that is who they are. And God tells Abraham, he has brought these two angels to measure judgment and justice upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham goes into bat for Sodom, knowing that his nephew is there and convinces God to send the angels to the city to see for themselves if there is anything redeeming within its walls before destroying it. Okay? Now we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 19. So Genesis 19. Reading from verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face to the ground and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet 
then you may rise early and go on your way. So Lot is sitting in the gate. Now, for those who understand about ancient times, this was a place of authority where commerce and justice were meted out by those who held power within the city. I did. Lot may be a guest in the city, but as possibly the wealthiest man of the city, perhaps even more so than the king of Sodom, he is ruling over the affairs of Sodom. So Lot isn't bowing to anyone, right? Are you with me? He's in the gate. He doesn't bow to anyone. Everyone bows to him. Are you getting the picture? Yet, when Lot sees these angels, he bows his face to the ground. Well, of course you say, they're angels, right? Thanks to the story, we know that they're angels, but Lot was, was not at that meeting with Abraham. So how does he know that they're angels? Are you getting what I'm saying? There must have been something about their countenance that made them easily identified as angelic beings to him. But whatever that countenance was, how did he know that that countenance that he was detecting was angelic? You understand? He might look at them and just go, wow, they seem really fresh. Right? What, what was it about them that allowed him to actually be able to identify that these two men are angels? And how uh, could it be that it was because he had seen that countenance somewhere before? Now, getting back to Hebrews... What if the statement that we read earlier about Melchizedek, which is usually interpreted metaphorically, what if we took that much more literally, that Melchizedek was not like the Son of God, but was actually a Son of God? Oh, oh. What if Melchizedek was a son of God? So what is the son of God? The New Testament has a lot to say about this term. One of the favorite scriptures for us in the way, Romans 8.14, please, Britt. Yes, that's good. <laughs> The sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So to be a son of God is to be led by the Holy Spirit. John 1 verses 11 to 13 reads, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become sons of God, even 
to them that believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the Apostle John tells us in his opening narrative that those who believe in Jesus can become sons of God. It is not necessarily so that all who believe in Jesus become sons of God. Ooh. Okay. Now, this is affirmed in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. And this is uh, like, I know some of you are like, I'll tell you, this is just too much. I'm just listening now. I'm just letting it wash over me. But get this scripture in front of you. This, get, make sure you've got your eyes on this scripture. Galatians 4 verse 1. Because this is a really strange little scripture. Galatians chapter 4 verse 1. And I'm reading from the New King James for this. Now I say that the heir as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So what's this saying? Some kid whose dad is the boss is actually no different to a slave. In verse 2, it goes on to say that he's, he actually still gets bossed around by tutors and and slaves right because while he's a child he he's no different he's still under under authority and under tutelage but when he comes of age now he's able to write checks off dad's account are you hearing what i'm saying but a child while he he remains a child doesn't differ from a slave though he is in fact master of all. Romans tells us also that the sons of God are present but have not yet been revealed in Romans 8.19 for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. This scripture has more power than many give credit to it. Hold on to this for later, okay? Now, the Old Testament has some things to say about the sons of God as well. A, a not often visited scripture is Job chapter 1, right? Verse 6 and 7. Well, Lucinda was waiting for this. That's good. So Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth upon it. So what do we learn from this? The sons of God is actually an angelic class that come before God. Number two, Satan is part of that class, is part of that class, or can I use the word order? Okay, and thirdly, 
Satan came from the earth to this convocation. So the sons of God is an angelic order. Satan is part of that order. And Satan came from the earth to stand before God as part of this gathering. That's interesting. Yeah? Also, we see in Psalm 82... Psalm 82, uh, I'm, going to, I'm basically going to read the whole psalm, so you might want to get it in front of you. <laughs> the rumbling in the background as I say, God stands in the divine assembly. He judges among the gods. Divine beings. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And that's God speaking to the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice and maintain the rights of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Rescue them from the hand of the wicked. The rulers do not know, nor do they understand. They walk on in the darkness of complacent satisfaction. All the foundations of the earth, the fundamental principles of the administration of justice are shaken. I said you are gods. Indeed, all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. That's the end of the picture. And then the writer of the psalm says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you belong to all the nations. So what we have got there is actually a picture of this convocation taking place. And, and God is addressing these this order, these sons of God, and among them are, are wicked gods who are showing partiality to the wicked, and, and he's calling them to account for not showing the righteousness and justice that he called them to show. Now, isn't that an interesting picture? So, like Lot encountering the angels at the gate, Abram encounters a son of God, Melchizedek, who is an actual representative of the council of heaven, manifesting on the earth, and as such, deserved to receive special tribute from Abram. And that is why Abram gave him a tenth. Right? Okay, so the order of Melchizedek is, I believe, the priestly order of heaven called the sons of God. Whoa. A king priestly order of heaven to which Jesus is high priest and you are called as co-heirs with him. But wait, 
there's more. Why is this important to us now? We all understand that the earth is in a fallen state. Is that right? But the divine order of heaven is also in a fallen state. It's not just the earth that is fallen, but the hierarchy of heaven is also corrupted. So we read Job 1.6, which tells us that Satan was amongst the sons of God. And we, we just looked at the psalm, which told us that there were unjust gods in the midst of the, the word there in Hebrew is Elohim. The Elohim. All right. And there are wicked, unjust sons of God. Okay. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 and uh, just write it down you'll know it when I start to read it out for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities remember I said realms right you are seated in heavenly realms we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of this dark age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realms. So these spiritual orders and authorities are currently in place. And we also know that their interaction with these dimensions is controlled and operates through specific boundaries and that is why they are not able to openly destroy us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's go there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 5, reading from verse 5. For those that just did the Blessed Hope series with me, this is a favourite scripture of mine. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And he who now restrains, there is a restrainer at work. Who or what is the restrainer? Holy Spirit. I mean, we're talking about the power of the Antichrist. There's only one force strong enough to restrain, and that's the Holy Spirit. So these forces, these principalities, the work of the spirit of Antichrist is restrained by the Holy Spirit. And Daniel describes in vivid detail how Gabriel, in bringing his message from God to Daniel, had to travel the paths from the heavenlies through Persia to reach him. And why? 
because Gabriel's entry point to the earthly realms came through the portal of Persia. The what, Todd? I'm, I'm sort of fast-tracking this for you, but why do, well, I mean, he says, I can't, I, the moment he started praying, I, I, just, I was sent by God to bring this message to you. But as I came to you, the prince of Persia stood against me and Michael had to come and fight. And for 21 days, they warred before I could come. And now I stand here before you to bring you the message. Now, the thing is, I just, as a kid, I went, well, why didn't he just go around? <laughs> right? So if, if the Prince of Persia is going to cause that much trouble, just go around him, right? But you see, it doesn't work like that. All right? We, we yes? You got it. We all understand, I believe, that there are places of spiritual consequence. High places, um, groves, bodies of water. Like, you know what I mean? There are places on the earth that carry spiritual juice, markers, importance, right? There's something about them which is inherently spiritual. It's like the... The, the veil between our dimensions and the higher dimensions is somehow thinner, right? Um, so these are what the scripture calls gateways. And these gateways are contested. We're going to read a scripture. You may never have read the scripture with this context in mind. Open up to Psalm 24. You're going, to, you're going to read this psalm from a completely different mindset now. Contested gateways. Psalm chapter 24, reading from verse 7 to 10. Open up, ancient gates. Open up, ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? Right, that's coming from, who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord invincible in battle. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? Comes the voices from the other side. The Lord of heaven's armies, he is the king of glory. Right, so what you've got is that this is a battle that is taking place at the gates, at the heavenly gates, at the portal where the angels are coming and they are crying out to the gates, we command you to open up for the king of glory. And on the other side comes the cry, who is the king of glory? It is the Lord, strong and mighty in battle. So what we are seeing here, this is actually a picture of the, 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 the stargate battle that is taking place in the heavenlies over the portal of entry from the higher dimensions into this dimension. 
right? That's what we're actually reading in that scripture. It's not just poetic language. And the day's going to come when these powers that currently control these gates are going to be unseated. Here we go, people. And we, the new sons of God, will take their place finally restoring divine order in heaven. Some of you are just like, tilt. <laughs> All right, Revelation chapter 12. See, they're, they're, they're in that place of authority and power, but the day is coming that they're going to get booted. And we read this in Revelation 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. Oh, the dragon? I wonder who that is. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer, or the heavens any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, just in case you're not aware of who we're talking about, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now the question is, has that happened yet? <coughs> no, it hasn't because we are still currently wrestling against principalities, powers, rulers and authorities who are in heavenly places. No, they're not here yet. They are still in the heavenly realms. So this, what we're reading here has not yet taken place. Then I heard, reading from verse 10, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. So that hasn't happened yet. We do not have Satan bound to this dimension and the angels bound to this dimension. They are still operating in the higher dimensions, what the scripture refers to as the heavenlies or the heavenly realms or the lower heavens, right? They are still in that dimension. But what that scripture in Revelation 12 is telling us is at the, at the midpoint of the great tribulation period, Satan and his angels are going to be cast out. See, forget this picture of the devil sitting on his throne down in hell, right? That's garbage. He is not there. He is called the prince of the power of the air. He rules from the second heavens. It, the, the, the dimension of the heavenlies that is contested 
that is where he dwells right now. But the day is going to come where he is going to be cast down to the earth. And that doesn't mean the earth like, well, it does, because what it means is that at the moment he is dwelling in the dimensions beyond our space-time continuum. But at this point is when he, he and the angels are going to be cast down and they are going to be trapped into our dimensionality, our space-time continuum. And they're saying, woe to the people of the earth when you're stuck with these guys and there is nothing restraining them. Right? So that's, that's bad. I do not know. So um, now let's go to Genesis 6. I, I genuinely, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Yep. Misappropriation of scripture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, which we read. Uh, oh, no, no, the, that was Job. Sorry. Uh, so Genesis 6, 1 to 2. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves for all whom they chose. Now, aside from the creepy implications of this scripture I want you to take particular attention to verse 2 the sons of God saw how is it that the sons of God were able to see the daughters of men because they were positioned to interact with humanity the book of Enoch goes into detail about this but what it describes is the watchers were placed as priests their job was to interface or interact between the heavenly realms and the earthly realms subsequent to the fall and the break that took place between our dimensionality and the higher dimensions when that broke the watchers were put in place to be in a position of interacting as priests between this realm and the higher dimensions. Okay? Now, the fact that that means that to be interacting with the, the heavenly realm and this realm means that they're able to transit between the two. And you go, well, that's an interesting concept, Todd, but where's Bible for that? Well, there is. Daniel chapter 4, verse 13. And behold, I saw in the visions of my mind as I lay on my bed an angelic watcher. There it is, right there in the Bible. An angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven that's Daniel chapter 4 so I want you to notice that this is way way after the flood and this angel is identified as a watcher and he has come to bring a message he is an ambassador an intermediary a priest and a good one right 
So he's coming to bring a message to Daniel and he's identified as a watcher, but he's a good one. He's not like the guys that we read in, in Genesis 6. Daniel 4.17, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. Notice that? This, this sentence is by the decree, not of God, but of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones. So that the living may know without any doubt that the Most High rules over the kingdom of mankind. So here we have, we have the divine, the, the holy, the righteous council making judgment over mankind. What did Paul say we will be doing? Do you not know that you will judge the world and that you will judge angels? You see, so we actually have evidence here of that divine council, the sons of God, the watchers, actually metering out justice into this dimension. I don't know about you, but I think that's really cool. And uh, uh, Daniel 4.23 also mentions this watcher coming from heaven as well. So I believe that we are unearthing one of the key roles of the sons of God here. And also we find evidence to the nature of Melchizedek in this as we go along as well. Now, in the Gospel of John, he records Jesus making a really mystical and cryptic statement. John chapter 1, verse 51. Oh, I love this. This is so good. John chapter 1, verse 51. And we're nearly there, folks. We're, we're kind of on the last major point. So we're, we're doing good for time. Verse 51. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will see all heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man the one who is the stairway between heaven and on earth. Drop the mic, walk away. What, listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you will see angels going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and on earth. What's he referencing? Yeah, but what's he, pay, what's he referencing? Old Testament. You will see angels ascending and descending. Jacob's ladder, right? He's, he is saying, I am Jacob's ladder. Right? Je Jesus is saying, I am Jacob's ladder. So what is, what is Jacob's ladder? Right? Genesis 28. Then Jacob, verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. So to put it into our vernacular, Jacob says... I found a stargate. 
I found a portal. This place is a stargate and a portal into the heavenly realms. And what's interesting is this, where was Jacob when this happened? On the very same mount which held the city of Salem, which would become Jerusalem, the same location where Jesus is born, where he would die one day and one day again return, the primary stargate of earth. (laughs) And Melchizedek was the king of the portal. One of the primary roles of the sons of God is the guardianship of the portals to heaven from earth. To be a son of God is to be a guardian of the portal. The sci-fi freaks are loving this, I'm sure. But wait, there's more. Go to John 10 verse 9. Because with all of this, (laughs) I love this, this is so good. John chapter 10 verse 9. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate. I am the portal. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the portal. So, while there are portals upon which with the angels must travel and interact, Jesus comes and says, I am the portal. Right? You don't have to worry about these transit points that the angels have to use anymore. He says, I am the portal. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on me. The places are no longer important. There is a higher order. There's a higher order. All right? Now, no, no, no. This is, this is really where it gets exciting. All right? We're bringing it home now. Turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 9. <laughs> Again, you're going to read this scripture with totally new eyes. Luke chapter 10, verse 9. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he says, go, go out, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons and say to them, the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. Now, why is Jesus telling his disciples when you go and do these things, tell them the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. As co-heads with Jesus, as beneficiaries of the same divine power through which Jesus operated, 
through the Holy Spirit as priests who are yet to be fully revealed and are called to take the place of the fallen order of the sons of God. Right now, we don't just control the portals. You are a portal. When people come near to you, the fissure between this realm and the realm of God is thinned to such a point that if they choose to, they can step through you into it. They can touch the kingdom of heaven through you. And you control the opening and closing of that portal. You, you are the event horizon between this realm and the hyperdimensions. You are the stargate that opens into the throne room of God. And you don't have to go to a place. You don't have to, this is the thing. There is, there is an overlay over this planet of stargates of portals that the angelic have to traverse through. But then Jesus comes along and through his blood overlays a completely different set of portals. And the problem with these portals is they're moving. <laughs> they're shifting all over the place and they keep growing and expanding. And there's more and more of them popping up over the world every day. And so every time you choose to dilate, right? And this is the thing. This is why it is so important to walk in the spirit. Because when you walk in the spirit, you dilate your portal. And, and you are actually open so as people come near you, they see through you into heaven. And not only that, if they choose to, they can step. Just as Jesus is the gate, you too are the gate. So people step through you into communion and relationship with God. So when we say... Follow me as I follow Christ. <laughs> it's a totally different perspective than just trying to live life walking out as a good person. Right? It is, it is saying, I am a portal into the throne room of God. And through me, if I choose to dilate, and that's the thing, is that you may very well be a portal, but if you don't open up, <laughs> open up you gates open up you gates you everlasting doors that the king of glory can come through you are a portal you are a gate you are the authority and power Two different things, authority, the justice, power, the dynamic activity of heaven at work on the earth. 
And that, my dear sons and daughters of God, that is your identity. Here endeth the lesson. God bless.